This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I'm joined by Joanne Taylor, Managing Director at K2, an industry-leading investigative compliance and cyber defense services firm. She joined K2 Intelligence with 20 years of experience in legal investigations and financial crime compliance, including fraud risk management, anti-bribery and corruption, and regulatory enforcement. Prior to joining K2, she led a global anti-fraud, bribery, and corruption strategy and was previously responsible for the global whistleblowing program and cross-border investigations at a major European bank. We discuss the Airbus settlement from the UK perspective. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me Joanne Taylor. Joanne is Managing Director at K2 in the UK office. And we are going to visit about the Airbus case, but from the UK perspective. So, Joanne, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. If you might tell our audience a little bit about your role as Managing Director at K2 in London. Yes, absolutely. So, um, I help guide client matters and investigations in a range of areas, including anti-bribery and corruption, fraud, and whistleblowing. Um, Here at K2, we help clients manage risk and address problems and complex situations, gathering intelligence to enhance critical decisions. And this includes both proactive and reactive measures. So proactive means helping clients to establish the right controls and programs in the first place. And then reactive means once a client has a problem, say, in anti-bribe and corruption, we help them deal with the problem and resolve it with the right strategy. Broadly speaking, we work with both public and private entities, and we're often called on by regulatory bodies to act as an independent monitor for organizations, including for cases that involve DPAs. Joanne, the Airbus case uh, is, uh, as you well know, the largest international anti-corruption resolution of all time. It touches literally every continent on the globe, save Antarctica, and it may be in in Antarctica as well. Uh, It is multiple countries across the globe. We had a stunning cooperation in terms of the investigation uh, between uh, French authorities, PNF, the UK Serious Fraud Office, and the United States, uh, various regulatory agencies in the United States. Um, One of the things that I am asked about this case is it's so massive and so large does it really have any relevance to the day-to-day compliance practitioner uh, because they're really having um, having trouble getting their arms around a bribery scheme this massive? So I was wondering if I might start with this huge question of what do you see as some of the key takeaways for your clients from this case? I think there are three key takeaways, Tom. Firstly, that for companies who've got potential bribery issues, it's critical to fully cooperate with enforcement authorities to get the best outcome. 
And the international cooperation model that we've seen work so successfully here means that companies which experience similar issues to Airbus need to ensure that their internal investigation is fully comprehensive in terms of scope and geographical footprint in order to get credit in a DPA-style arrangement. As Lisa Osofsky, director of the SFO, has said in one of her speeches, tell me something I don't know. And here, Airbus was given credit for identifying potential bribery issues in jurisdictions which the SFO otherwise just would not have known about. The second takeaway when we look at the Airbus remediation is around framework controls and testing. And we tell our clients frequently that companies need to have a robust anti-bribery and corruption risk assessment process in place because this is a mechanism for identifying key bribery risks within their business and assessing potential control weaknesses. It's a fundamental component of any successful bribery and corruption program. The other observation with Airbus that I think is very interesting is that the controls that look fine on paper just didn't work in practice. And so there's huge value for companies in doing independent contesting of controls, which are operated by both the business and controls operated by compliance in order to detect situations where the controls are defective or are being circumvented. And I think the best example of this um, from the UK perspective in Airbus is what happened with Ghana. So in Ghana, a business partner was engaged and Airbus commissioned an external due diligence report on that business partner's corporate vehicle. The report came back and it contained a number of red flags including the possibility that the business partner was a close relative of a government official. Airbus then circumvented the proper process by replacing this business partner with a pre-existing business partner which had no link to Ghana, and the money still flowed to the original business partner. This highlights both the need for companies to undertake proper due diligence on their business partners, but also the importance of independent testing to find out where controls are not working. My final thought is that compliance professionals can learn from this that companies need to have an effective controls and oversight structure. The court noted in this settlement that the Airbus committees responsible for the oversight of business partner relationships were not able to provide effective or properly informed oversight in the manner intended. The extensive cooperation, I was wondering if you might either be able to go into that a little bit into the weeds or give us some examples from your perspective of where you saw Airbus extensively cooperating with the Serious Fraud Office. Absolutely. So after a slow start, um, Airbus was given uh, credit for exemplary cooperation. And I think there are three key themes here. First, they accepted the involvement of the SFO without challenge. Secondly, the sheer comprehensiveness of their own internal investigation. And thirdly, the extent of the remediation that they undertook. So on the first point, Airbus accepted that the UK Bribery Act 2010 provided the SFO with extended extraterritorial powers and a potential interest in the facts post-2011. And the court noted that this was an unprecedented step for a Dutch and French domicile company to take in respect of the reporting of conduct which had taken place almost exclusively overseas. Second, the court noted the comprehensiveness of the internal investigation 
Just by way of example, Airbus examined all business partner relationships, including former business partners. It collected over 30 million documents from over 200 custodians. It provided detailed presentations with all sorts of supporting documentation, ranging from emails right through to accounting records. And in essence, it joined the dots for the SFO. It provided, and I think this is really crucial, key documentation regarding bank accounts into which the monies have flowed at an early stage. And this meant the SFO could quickly follow up with the relevant overseas jurisdictions through a process known as mutual legal assistance. I think this is a really important point given that we know from the fact that some of the payments were made to offshore locations such as the British Virgin Islands. Airbus was given credit for tone from the top from the new management. That included matters such as providing the investigation team with direct access to the Airbus committee that was conducting the internal investigation, being cooperative on legal privilege, and engaging in dialogue throughout, including in respect to, for instance, media strategy. Moving on to the third key theme, this is remediation, also known as the Airbus compliance journey. A critical change here was the parting ways with a substantial number of individuals, 63 in total, including some senior management. Airbus shored up its ethics and compliance teams through experienced compliance personnel being hired. And these teams have been restructured and their reporting line is now directly into the general counsel. Airbus appointed an ethics and compliance officer and a new ethics and compliance committee. And finally, and also not to be uh, forgotten, it overhauled its ABC program. Um, it revised its ABC policy, launched a comprehensive company-wide risk assessment, and redesigned the onboarding, due diligence, and ongoing monitoring of third parties, such as business partners. Finally, implemented a targeted 24-month training plan. From my experience, these are all core components of a successful ABC program. And last but not least, Airbus reduced their use of business partners by 95% across the group by 2015. Joanne, one of the fascinating things about this case was the extraordinary cooperation on the investigative slash prosecutorial side. We saw the French PNF, obviously the SFO and the Department of Justice all uh, stake out different areas of inquiry, partly around uh, violation of national laws. Uh, so, for, in the, for instance, in the United States, it may have been U.S. export control laws. But we also saw splitting up of uh, massive document reviews. What sort of lessons might the compliance practitioner draw from this in a massive international anti-corruption investigation? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. What we see here is a division of investigative priorities between the PNF and SFO by geography with the SFO focusing on eight countries and the PNF focusing on 15. And by joining forces, obviously, the enforcement authorities were able to have a much broader and deeper global reach into Airbus activities. Why were the French in the lead here? Um, I suspect the answer lies in the French blocking statute, which prevents a company like Airbus registered in France from communicating certain types of documents which could constitute evidence in foreign proceedings. And the fact that the French were in the lead here is, is acknowledged, but also telling, because 
For instance, Colombia was originally covered by the SFO, but the SFO agreed at a later stage that this conduct should be included in the French settlement to reflect that French primacy. The French primacy is also apparent from how the fines were split. So Airbus agreed to pay 990 million euro to the SFO and 2.1 billion euro to the French authorities. So the French authorities covered more of the investigation geographically, but got a much larger slice of the pie. And I think this matters a really big deal for the French authorities following the anti-corruption reforms it introduced in 2016. Joanne, one of the things that makes the United Kingdom deferred prosecution agreement uh, different from the United States, obviously, is in court involvement, uh, asking and answering a series of questions about the uh, uh, is the DPA in the interest of justice and it is appropriate and as in part of its analysis in this matter, the court looked at an economic analysis of the impact of Airbus, what the, um, I suppose if Airbus was debarred, what that might mean. Certainly if Airbus went away, what it would mean. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts around the economic analysis and how that played into not only the decision to grant a deferred prosecution agreement by the serious fraud office, but also in the court's analysis. Absolutely. So in the UK, the court retains control of the ultimate outcome. And it's very important to the, to the court that it gives um, its reasons for deciding to approve a DPA like this. Um, and the whole basis of that publication is that, that this idea that the process should be open to public scrutiny. And I really think that's especially important in a case like this where, as the court itself said, the criminality was grave. Um, and what happened here is that the court accepted evidence put forward by Airbus um, around the um, significant economic effects which would have followed from a trial and a guilty verdict. And as you mentioned, Tom, um, it looks at the effect on the company financially, on innocent employees, on pensioners, and also in particular on the um, companies and jobs which would be affected as part of Airbus's supply chain. And it even went so far as to say that um, evidence suggested that if Airbus were, were banned from public procurement contracts as a result of a guilty verdict, um, then over a 15-year time frame, the indirect impact on the economies of the UK, US, Germany, France, and Spain would be to lower GDP in each of those countries by over 100 billion. Another factor which I think is specific to this case is the fact that Airbus is in a duopoly. And here the court noted that there could be adverse consequences from a prosecution in terms of uh, the reduction in competition for future public tenders. And that could lead to additional public spending of many billions of euros. And a final consideration from the court was a pragmatic one around the use of SFO resources, because the model in the UK is that the SFO has a limited budget and its resources are quite stretched. And here the court noted that by entering into the DPA, the SFO avoids significant expenditure in time and money that would be inherent in any prosecution of Airbus and it's free then to use its limited resources in other important work. One of the things that's sitting here, I'm in Houston, Texas, so obviously across the pond from you, and we sit and look at the SFO, and um, perhaps most charitably I could say it seems to be a mixed bag. 
of where the SFO may be going. But this was clearly a huge victory for the SFO. I was wondering from your perspective in the United Kingdom, what do you see this judgment says about or do for the SFO going forward? I think it's a really great outcome for the SFO. It's a record-breaking fine. It's, the fine itself is greater than all previous sums paid under the previous um, DPAs that we've had in this country. And the fine dwarfs, for instance, the Rolls Royal settlement, which was £671 million. And this is particularly remarkable given that the conduct initially reported had taken place almost exclusively overseas. When, when Lisa Osofsky took over, um, one of the first things she said was that she was fully in favor of this model of international cooperation and the continued use of DPAs. And in 2019, um, there were two DPAs settled, but they were for much smaller sums of £23 million and £2 million, respectively. So for Osofsky, this is a huge, a huge win um, and bodes well for her tenure at the SFO. We're nearing the end of our time, but I wanted to uh, perhaps ask, in, in light of the international cooperation on the investigative side, uh, if a company finds itself in, in this type of situation, should they be prepared to fully cooperate with numerous or at least multiple investigative agencies? Once again, as we saw here with the Department of Justice, the Serious Fraud Office, and the PMF, uh, and really set up a... a, a cooperation strategy with each uh, individual uh, investigative function? Is that even where companies get off to a slow start when they're investigating potential bribery matters, um, they can still benefit from a DPA here in the UK if they fully cooperate once the serious fraud office has become aware. And the UK court said that even if the authorities become aware of the relevant conduct by the actions of a third party, if subsequent self-reporting or cooperation is of a high quality, this will be a significant factor in favor of a DPA. So my message there is, if you have a few troubles right at the start, as long as you put your investigation on track as soon as you possibly can, then you can still have a very good chance of getting the best outcome for your company. Um, in terms of um, the the uh, cooperation model more generally, um, absolutely companies need a strategy for dealing with um, all sorts of regulators who may have an interest in this case. Sometimes they combine forces like we've seen here with the SFO and the PNF and other times they're operating more independently and therefore you need a strategy for facing off to that particular regulator that's operating more independently. Um, what we also see is companies need to be prepared for a second wave of regulatory interest. And the Air Asia example in Airbus is a good example where now after this settlement, the Malaysian authorities are saying that they've started their own investigation into Airbus and therefore Airbus will need to look at how they cooperate again with yet another uh, regulatory uh, request for information and so on. So absolutely, you need to get your strategy right um, and you need to do it as soon as possible. Joanne, that's a great point uh, for us to end on because it's clear the Airbus um, uh, matter will continue. Now we have the secondary investigations and there obviously will be continued oversight of Airbus in their remediation and implementation of the new compliance solution. 
I wondered if uh, anyone wanted more information on K2. Uh, where could they go, Joanne? So we have a website, k2intelligence.com, and we can also be found on LinkedIn and Twitter. Well, Joanne, this has just been a fascinating exploration of a part of the biggest anti-corruption settlement of all time. So I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've not done so, please go to iTunes and rate our show as it would help in our ratings and help get the word out about the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.